welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard Industry Updates for the Modern Dairy Family. I'm Darby Toth, a Technical Field Services Representative with Western United Dairies. And I'm Melissa Lima, North Coast and Organic Field Services Representative with Western United Dairies. Welcome to episode 17. I cannot believe we're already at episode 17. I know. I was uh, recording with Paul and Dr. Mittloner earlier this week, and Paul's like, yeah, we've been doing it for about a month or so. So um, it was kind of funny. We've actually been, now I guess we're four months in. So yeah, that's four months of weather updates. Yes. (laughs) And I don't even want to talk about it this week. It's so bad. (laughs) It's cold there. It's hot here. Oh, gosh. Again, I would trade a few degrees one way or the other. I'm sure you would also. Exactly. Well, I'm really excited about our our episode this week. I'm really excited to listen to your and Paul's interview with um, Dr. Mittloner. I haven't heard that yet, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we had a great chat with Dr. Mittloner, and it sounds like, um, you know, after the recording, we talked a little bit about different ways he can engage um, on different levels through us with more California dairymen. So I'm really excited about that. Really interested in Jason's legislative update. You had a chance to talk with Jason yesterday, Darby, and it was a good chat. Yeah, it was good. He really went through a lot of the facets of some of the bills that are kind of floating around in Sacramento right now, especially AB 2959. So I think it's going to be a good update for us and our members. Definitely. And then, of course, as always, we have the wonderful Annie with a market update. But this week, you guys chatted about a few other things as well. Oh, of course, we had to chat about (laughs) quota. It's been quite the hot topic this week. We were talking about just how many moving pieces seem to be going on at once. And it's pretty hard, at least for me, to keep track of everything. Every time I think I have a handle on it, it just starts moving around again. It's an important topic. As much as I dread seeing it in our show notes. Um, I do think it's important for the members to get the update and hopefully one of these days we won't have to be talking about it as much. Well, why don't we jump right into that interview with you and Annie and then we'll lead straight into Annie's market update from there. Annie, it's good to have you with us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Um, There has been a lot going on about quota um, they, there's actually a the court hearing that's occurring this week. Uh, we'll probably cover that in the podcast next week. Uh, but big developments in the um, regarding this chapter 3.5 hearing. I think we all had an interesting time listening to that. Remember those uh, how the technical issues went in early June. Um, that was June 9 and 10th, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and so we had, um, it's been now almost two months since that hearing, and the administrative law judge that was presiding over that hearing um, came with a recommendation uh, to the secretary, and he basically uh, recommended denying Stop Stop Quip's petition. And so basically this means that the the ball's in the secretary's court now, but if we go back to the hearing, that chapter 3.5 was what Stop Quip had uh, petitioned on, which had a different threshold uh, requirement for a referendum. And so what this means is that the the law judge there did not think that was the proper way of uh, conducting a petition. And so all the statutory requirements for referendum were the primary basis to this conclusion. A lot of people testified, a lot of economic evidence, a lot of family evidence, a lot of personal stories. Um, He did say in his recommendation that evidence really did not... uh, factor in the decision, uh, but, of, but hopefully 
um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I'm thinking about it, maybe it helped in, a little bit in the background, but um, the legal requirements is really what he looked at and that's what ultimately made him do that recommendation for the secretary. Yeah, it's been for sure, I think a lot of information that has gotten condensed into finally a decision. I know I've had quite a few producers starting to ask me a few weeks ago, do we know, when are we gonna know? Um, is there anything else going on in quota that we should be aware of? Yeah, so now we're going to wait for a final word from the secretary on that, but also on the side note, um, the United Dairy Families of California had submitted another petition to the secretary for um, another hearing, and so they had um, submitted that in June, and now uh, that petition was qualified, which means that there was enough signature of producers um, to justify holding a hearing on this petition. And if, if you recall, you know, that the process from DFC started last year with many meetings around the state and surveys and uh, the final plan was proposed uh, or presented at the Ag Expo in February. And that, that's when they submitted that, that proposal. And basically what it means is that there would be a five-year sunset on, um, on quota uh, from now on and also a, a removing of the RQAs uh, starting after the hearing, if everything goes through. And so um, their goal is to bring this to producer referendum to make this a producer decision in terms of what happens with quota. And so now that's been qualified, there's going to be a producer review board meeting uh, likely in August uh, before there's going to be hearing um, to consider that petition. Well, there's been for sure a lot of pieces to keep track of and a lot of moving parts. And we really appreciate you taking the time to help kind of make sense of them as well as keeping us updated on just what's going on. Yeah, that's a lot of moving parts. I think that's as many moving parts on quota that uh, there's been kind of all moving simul simultaneously with all potential different outcomes. And so we'll definitely keep um, membership updated with, you know, this podcast and on the newsletter as well, as soon as we hear um, any results from any of those uh, parallel things happening with quota. Well, thanks, Annie. As we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add? I'm glad to be bringing another market update this week because prices continue to be going pretty well. Um, there's not any major reports that came out this week, so not a whole lot of background information, but overall, um, prices continue to do pretty well and Block is continues to steal the show. So we had a gain of $0.06 cents this week, and the USDA price now stands at $2.77 per pound. Um, I mentioned last week that we may have a few weeks left of this, you know, joyful block ascent, but it looks like we're approaching the top floor because CME prices um, started to come down here in the last two weeks. We had a record uh, of $3 a pound, um, you know, that was reached. And that's something that um, had never been done before. And so at, at some point, um, something had to give based on uh, the current market conditions out there. But still really great that we experienced those high prices. Those translated into higher USDA prices. And so we'll definitely take it um, while it went by. And so if we look at barrels, there's been a lot less volatility. Um, a gain of 2.8 cents this week it stands at 2.45 per pound for USD prices. And if we look at uh, CME, um, just about the same, around 2.44. And so we only have one more week of data to get in to get the full class price picture for July. But based on the data we already have for the month, it looks like the class three price will go above $24 per hundred weight. With butter and powder prices that are much lower, 
the gap between your two class prices is gonna be probably wider than it was in June, which means the PPD will also be very negative in July. So if you missed that conversation, uh, we recorded a bonus episode on the podcast that you can check out, or we also posted the video on our YouTube channel and on the Wood website. So if you missed that and you're interested in more details on why the PPD is going so wild, um, you can take a listen to that. USD butter prices continued to drop a little bit this week, loss a penny to $1.75 a pound. Sammy butter price continued uh, to go down a little bit more. We actually dropped like 15 half cent to $1.55. So this is the lowest level for butter since the middle of May. Non-fat dry milk uh, for USD prices gained a penny, uh, 97 cents a pound. CME spot powder prices continued to hover near the dollar threshold. So just a lot of very slow movement on the parter markets this week. And Dryway also was um, fairly slow, gained a penny though, and standing at uh, almost 36 cents a pound. So this concludes the uh, market update for this week. And I will pass it back on to Darby and Melissa for more information. Talk next week. Thanks so much, Annie, for another exciting market update. Now we'll jump over to Darby, who met with our Director of Legislative Affairs, Jason Bryant, to talk with a little bit of legislative news this week. I'm here today with West United Dairies Government Affairs team member, Jason Bryant, and thank you for taking time out of your busy day to be with us today, Jason. Good to be here, Darby. Thank you for the time. Appreciate it. I know it's coming up on a busy part of the year for you, but we wanted to, you know, join up with you and talk about AB 2959. And that's a bill which recently passed the California Assembly that would limit livestock and poultry producers' ability to source nutritious and valuable bribe products to be used as livestock feeds. Do you have an update for us on kind of where things stand with the bill and what the bill encompasses? You bet. Happy to do that. And, um, uh, Western United Dairies has been um, monitoring and engaged in this bill for the better part of uh, three months as the bill was um, being considered in the assembly. Um, and, and we're amplifying our advocacy work now, now that the bill is uh, in, the, in the state Senate um, during the final month of the legislative session, uh, which kicked off actually last Monday. Uh, and so um, we are in a, um, a, a period of time in the legislature where um, all of the remaining bills have to be considered and passed by, um, by the end of August, otherwise those bills do not advance. And so here's what bill, an example of, a, of an issue that we're working on, where we're, we're hopeful that the legislature does not advance the bill, and the bill is ultimately held in the Senate. Uh, and the bill is uh, 2959, uh, like you mentioned. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about the, the background of the policy and, and what we're doing to uh, ensure this bill does not pass this year. Um, all of you know, uh, for those that are that are tuning in, you know firsthand um, um, of the importance that food byproducts can be uh, to your dairy operation. In some cases, food byproducts can make up um, approximately half of the feed that is made available to to herds on a dairy farm. Uh, byproducts are by far the most nutritionally dense and sustainable feed that can be found. Um, many of these products are sourced by dairy producers from restaurants, bakeries, and other commercial food production facilities. And without that sourcing, uh, these products would otherwise be ending up in landfills as waste. Um, 
Um, one of the attributes of the dairy industry is that we can uh, upcycle those products and use them um, in feed. Um, and it's the ability of our dairy farmers uh, and their ability to source these byproducts, um, which is key. And that's what the bill uh, deals with. Um, <clears throat> we must have an open and competitive marketplace when it comes to being able to source these byproducts. And that includes the, um, the storage, um, the, um, uh, the shipping and logistics and delivery of those byproducts. Um, and and that, that's where this bill comes in. <clears throat> the sponsors of 2959 um, are the major um, uh, waste companies, um, some of which are uh, California-based and some of which are uh, multinational companies. And these um, uh, waste haulers or waste companies are sponsoring the bill because they want the exclusive right to move those products from where they are produced to where they are used in our agricultural settings on the dairy farm. Currently under existing law, um, you all have the ability to contract with uh, any number of, of haulers to move that product from where it originates um, to where you are farming. This bill says only the franchised haulers that have the, um, the existing contract with the city or county in which the product is produced can move that product. And so um, if you are a dairy producer in the city of Galt, and you are uh, seeking to, um, to purchase byproducts uh, and you have a logistics company providing that service for you, unless that company is also the exclusive waste hauler for the city of Galt, um, then you would not be able to utilize um, that service. You'd be required to utilize the service from which the product is generated and or where the product is delivered. Uh, and therefore uh, limiting the ability uh, for our members to openly source in a competitive marketplace these, uh, these byproducts, which are an essential component to our feed. So obviously this is a huge concern uh, for us, uh, major impacts to uh, dairy sustainability in California, one that we're very proud of. Um, and, and really um, when you, when you um, support policy, we believe, that will exclude um, many entities from providing this service, potentially restrict the availability of byproducts. Um, it's a lose-lose proposition. Not only do, does the sustainability of the dairy industry uh, go down or reduced in some way, um, the amount of byproducts that end up in landfills goes up. Um, and we think that as a result of the bill, uh, our costs are gonna go up. Uh, we don't contemplate a situation where all of the franchise haulers who are sponsoring this bill will ultimately be able to source and supply and deliver the byproducts that are currently being demanded uh, by our members. Uh, they probably don't have the logistics available or the willingness uh, or the scale uh, to provide that service today and nothing in this bill guarantees or requires those waste haulers to provide that service. It's simply an option. So they want the exclusivity, 
but there's, a no, there's no mandate to actually perform that service. And so certainly availability is likely to go down. Um, costs will go up because they have the exclusive right to provide this service and no one else can compete for our business. Um, and sustainability of our industry is certainly going to be diminished. And that's just a lose-lose situation. And that's why we're so focused on, on defeating Assembly Bill 2959. Um, we know firsthand, of course, um, that uh, COVID-19 and um, the continual spread of this virus um, and many of our communities and throughout the state is having, uh, is placing tremendous pressures on dairy farmers. Um, we all know far too well that um, half of our customers were wiped out when restaurants, hotels, entertainment venues, and other institutions were forced to close um, early in the spring this year uh, because of uh, concerns about virus spread. Uh, we have, of course, we've adapted quickly as an industry uh, to ensure the safe and available delivery of our dairy products at grocery stores where the predominant uh, demand for our products is these days, given um, the constraints around restaurants, hotels, and other institutions. Um, and we're very proud that as of today, we know of no retail shopping limits that are being imposed on uh, purchases of dairy products, including milk and other staples. I think we're very proud of that work, uh, but we certainly have huge challenges ahead given the impacts of COVID. Logistics, suppliers, labor, um, we're all struggling with those constraints. Um, and, and now's a time where we can at least afford um, um, a bill like this, which will only increase costs, feed costs um, to our members, reduce the availability of byproducts. Um, uh, for, for what, if we ask? Uh, and it's certainly a, a big question, I think that's going to be debated in the Capitol, is what is the benefit of the bill other than to simply give um, a certain type of um, hauler the exclusive right to move these products, which are so essential to our industry and to the sustainability of California. So uh, we're working hard. Uh, we're working within an ag coalition. Um, we're also partnering with the, um, the Grocers Association, um, who obviously has an interest in this bill uh, because many of their members are producing uh, products that end up becoming byproducts when they're unused. Um, and so they have an interest in ensuring those products move quickly and efficiently from their premise uh, into um, a supply chain that provides uh, feed for, for our dairy cows. So um, pressure is mounting uh, and we're working hard to count our votes in the Senate uh, to ensure the bill does not move beyond uh, the second house here in the final month of session. So I know I provided a lot in this update, but I want to give you a full overview on, on how we read the bill, what we think the impacts are, and what we're doing to, uh, to ensure that uh, this bill is held this year. So I'll take a breath there and turn it back <laughs> over to you, Darby. Well, thanks so much, Jason. Thanks, first of all, for all the work that you're doing. And second of all, for just such a nice, in-depth, thorough update. I think I've seen this bill kind of making its rounds in social media, a lot of ag-based pages. And I think the longer that agriculture as a whole sits with this bill, the more we realize how potentially detrimental it could be. Like you mentioned, especially in a time 
where, you know, margins are even thinner than they were before and we're dealing with all the new restrictions from COVID. So if our members are listening to this and hearing about this bill and they feel like they want to do something, what would you recommend for them to do? It's a great question. And, and you know, since we're in the last month of session, um, you know, every vote matters. Um, and we're working diligently to get our vote cards lined up. Um, and what one of the things we have done pretty successfully so far is engaged in a grassroots campaign. Um, uh, Western sent out a couple of updates to our members asking for their help. And one of the ways they can help our effort is to simply uh, indicate that they read about 2959, they've heard about it, and that you're opposed to the bill. And give us your name, uh, your dairy name, and the city in which, or city or town, in which your operation um, uh, is, and let us know. And we will pass that on um, to your state senator, because we want to make sure that not only are they hearing from Western United Dairy's professional staff, but they're hearing from the grassroots. And in a, in a issue like this, um, that means a lot. And so um, if you're listening to this update and, and you care about um, sourcing byproducts um, efficiently and effectively, uh, lend us a hand and email Darby and, um, and let us use your, um, your operation um, so that we can uh, ensure this bill is stopped. Um, we'll get that on to your state senator and make sure your voice is heard. Well, thank you so much, Jason. And for anybody listening who doesn't have my email, I'll link it in the show notes as well. But it is Darby, D-A-R-B-Y, at wudairies.com. And just thanks again so much for being with us, Jason, and all of your hard work. We really appreciate you. Uh, my pleasure. And uh, if there's any questions about this bill, how it would affect you, um, I'm happy to answer any more detailed questions and, and appreciate the time. And and for those that are willing to step up and help, thank you. Um, and there'll be more on this topic in the coming days and months. So thanks a lot. Well, thanks again, Jason. We really appreciate having you on. And now I'm really excited to lead into the interview with Melissa and Paul, who met to talk with Dr. Mitloner. Okay, so this week uh, on our podcast, we have uh, Dr. Frank Mitloner with UC Davis. Uh, talking to us about um, greenhouse gases, climate change, and uh, the role of agriculture in that. Um, I think many of us have heard Frank speak. Um, he brings an element of uh, fact to a lot of the fiction that's going on out in the media regarding climate change and uh, the role of agriculture and specifically animal agriculture and animal proteins in the diet. And uh, so I'd like to welcome Frank to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mitloner, for joining us this morning. Thank you, Paul, for having me. So uh, a lot's been going on uh, in this area. You know, climate change is uh, very important. Um, you know, a lot of people are engaged in it. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, the picture of uh, what can an individual do, myself, uh, you know, at home with my family, what are important things that I can do um, to help solve the climate change issue? Uh, and there was a report a few years ago, uh, Livestock's Long Shadow, uh, which pointed out that the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions was uh, animal agriculture around the globe. And, uh, you know, so if I'm a consumer sitting at home and I'm watching a news story, uh, I might think, wow, you know, I need to cut back on that steak or that burger. 
uh, or that milk, that, that's how I'm going to contribute to climate change. But I know you were really involved in that and um, wondering if you could kind of, um, you know, clarify for us um, what happened with that report and your engagement with that report and, and what did you find? Yeah, so a lot of confusion came about as a, as a result of that report, Livestock's Long Shadow. Uh, it was published back in 2006, so you, you might think, well, that's a really old report and who cares, but um, it has actually uh, opened the floodgates to a lot of uh, poor reporting out there. Um, the report itself was actually not bad, um, but it had one sentence in its executive summary, and in that sentence it said that the livestock sector is responsible for 18, that's one eight, 18 percent of all greenhouse gases, and then it went on as saying, and that's a larger share than transportation. So, uh, and that's where I had the beef uh, with uh, this report because it is really not true that livestock has a greater share than transportation with respect to greenhouse gases. Um, the authors of that report made a mistake, which was they used one methodology for livestock with a very detailed so-called life cycle assessment. But for transportation, they only looked tail at, at tailpipe emissions, so-called direct emissions. And that was a clear apples to oranges comparison that I critique even publicly. And the authors retracted that assertion that livestock is more uh, greenhouse gas emitting than transportation as a result. But uh, the horse had left the barn and uh, many, many um, activists and even reporters gloomed onto that and have continued to use it even up until today. And uh, that is really troubling because we know what the current contributions are of livestock globally. All livestock, and I re-emphasize re globally, contribute to 14, that's one four, 14.5% of all greenhouse gases. But um, in the United States, the picture is different. So for example, here in the United States, beef contributes to 3%, dairy contributes to 2% of greenhouse gases. And we know this because we've done very detailed so-called life cycle assessments here in our country. And uh, so these are life cycle numbers, the best numbers out there and peer reviewed, published and so on. Uh, the EPA actually says that livestock's contribution is lower than that. The EPA says it's around um, less than 4% in total. Uh, when the industry did research, we came out with a little bit higher numbers, but it's anywhere between four and 5%, not more than that. So just to give you an idea, the three main contributors to greenhouse gases are all fossil fuel users and producers, and um, that includes the transportation sector, power production and use, and the so-called cement industry. These three emit 80%, 8-0 of all greenhouse gases. So if you ask, what can I do? First of all, you personally cannot do very much because uh, even if all of us, the 320 million Americans were to change our personal lives to some extent, uh, we would not cause major changes to greenhouse gases. The main, the main contributors to greenhouse gases in the United States are a couple dozen large companies and entities. And, uh, and they actually emit the vast majority. You saw this during COVID-19, the lockdown. Um, you saw what happened when, uh, when all of a sudden everybody had to stay home. We didn't go to work. We didn't go do the, the normal things we do and uh, life changed drastically. And um, that was mainly a result of 
the airline industries, uh, they, they had to stop and um, industries had to stop. And, you know, all of a sudden, all different kinds of industries that are mega polluters had to stop and CO2 emissions went down. Our cows did not go down. They continued to belch and do whatever they do. Um, they did not take a break, as we all know. Um, I can tell you one thing for sure, and that is it's not agriculture that's causing the majority of greenhouse gases. It is particularly the fossil fuel sector, and we have to be honest about it. And that's not to say that we don't have a contribution. We do have one. We know what it is. On the dairy side, it's 2%. And what I find is really important is not just have we quantified this, but we are on a path to achieve further reductions. And reductions, particularly in methane, lead to actual cooling impacts. And that is amazing. The industry has an amazing success story to tell, particularly here in California. Yeah, I would agree. Um, you know, since 1383, uh, SB 1383 passed by the state legislature, um, mandating a 40% reduction in manure methane emissions. Uh, you know, I've been in this industry a long time, uh, my whole life. And to see this industry change the way it has, the, uh, the emission reductions we have achieved since 2015 are truly monumental. Um, you know, a lot of that came with incentives uh, through CDFA and the Digester Research and Development Program and the Alternative Manure Management Program. Um, but, you know, we are making great strides. I think it's important to, um, you know, see that piece of the pie, as you described earlier, you know, where does agriculture fit? And then that we are uh, achieving, you know, emission reductions in our industry, greenhouse gas emission reductions. So, you know, you know, Paul, I'm glad you mentioned this. Uh, in the state of California, our state agencies have already certified a 25% reduction, a 25% reduction of methane that has already been achieved. So we're over halfway on our path to that 40% reduction goal. And that is truly outstanding. And I want to say one more thing along those lines. If you reduce methane, because it's a short-lived climate pollutant, if you reduce methane, you're actively pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. You're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. That's as, as effective as actively sucking CO2 out of the air. By reducing methane, we are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, and that actually has a net cooling effect. So our dairy industry, our beef industry, can counteract some of the fossil fuel-related greenhouse gases. This is a narrative not many people have heard, but it's one that's very important. So, I have a you know, question. Just speaking okay. of, um, you know, narratives not many people have heard, and I really appreciate that you mentioned the COVID-19 situation where when we all stayed home, we saw vast improvements to air quality because cars weren't on the road and airplanes weren't in the air and certain industries weren't working. And I, I saw a lot of little memes on, you know, Instagram and Twitter of, you know, all the cows are still here, but the airplanes aren't and we're doing better. The problem is a lot of that stuff, all those messages and all those narratives seem to be in our own echo chamber. How, and can you share a little bit about what you and your organization, the Clear Center at UC Davis are doing to get the word out there to a broader audience? All this good, there's tons of good news, um, but it doesn't seem to be, you know, leaving our kind of circle, I would say. I would agree. I, I and maybe yeah. you can start by defining the Clear Center and talking more about that. I, I was going to ask that same question, but maybe you can talk about the Clear Center and, and you know, a little bit of background on that. Yeah, Melissa, I, I share your frustration because uh, people in agriculture oftentimes uh, speak to their own echo chamber, okay? And uh, I really got tired of this. And so uh, two years ago, I uh, decided I had to do something about this. 
And uh, while I'm a professor and air quality specialist here at UC Davis and reach undergraduate students and some producers like you and so on, I wanted to make sure that it doesn't stop there, okay? Because uh, we, need to re we need to reach the public at large. We need to reach journalists and politicians and we need to reach, you know, influencers out there. Definitely. We need to reach AOC, Congresswoman from the Bronx and so on. And so I decided to establish a center on campus at UC Davis called the CLEAR Center. And the CLEAR Center is a center dedicated to doing research in agricultural sustainability. One, so research. And the second part, the second half, equally important is communication. So I have hired full-blown journalists to work with me. And that's very important because they speak the same language as those people writing all these articles and making those TV shows and so on. So now I really have not just myself as a voice, but I have a, um, a center behind me uh, consisting of professionals who can do top level research and then communicate that in ways the public understands. Right. So we, we don't just use language that farmers understand, like feed efficiency, for example, is, an ex is, is a great example. Every dairy farmer will understand what feed efficiency means, but nobody in the public will understand it. Right. However, they understand what fuel efficiency means very well. So if you just uh, work with a couple of communication experts, then they can translate what you want to say into ways that the public understands. And we have not done a good job in the past. We have to tell ourselves, um, <laughs> we have to have a reality check here, which mm -hmm. is, uh, while we understand what's going on, while we understand and internally communicate well, we have not taken the public along with us, okay? And this is oftentimes falling on our feet now. And uh, I think the, the more honest we are about that with ourselves, the better it is. We have some catching up to do. And then once we're done with the catch up, then we have to lead. Then we have to lead. So I am actively discussing things with AOC in the Bronx. I am discussing things with the FAO in Rome, the Food and Agriculture Organization. I am discussing stuff with journalists and politicians in the California legislature, in the, in, the, in the Washington legislature. But I'm also, of course, uh, daily communicating with farmers and with people in agriculture. Uh, but I don't leave anybody behind. I'm also discussing stuff with environmentalists. There are some activists out there uh, that want to be argumentative and that want to be, um, sometimes they are inappropriate and they are super aggressive. And this is the only group I totally leave, leave out, okay? I will not deal with activists who have zero interest in a, uh, in a fruitful discussion. Um, they are the only ones I totally ignore. And if they are inappropriate, I block them. So I now have a Twitter account, you know, okay? A year ago, I yeah. thought I would never be on Twitter, okay? <laughs> I would never be on Twitter. I thought it was a total waste of time to write something that is 280 characters long. But you know what? Now I have 3 million impressions a month and you show me what other, what other um, media or so I could use to have that kind of a, an impact. You know, in the past, I wrote newsletters. And if I reached 100 or 200 producers, I, was, I thought I did a great job. Yeah. Now I feel like, oh, my gosh, I can reach hundreds of thousands of people. I wrote a tweet yesterday, a so-called threat, which is a, a, like a lineup of tweets on Twitter about a UN statement that came out yesterday, which said, hey world, stop eating meat or reduce eating meat. 
Um, and then I wrote this, this long tweet thread or Twitter thread. And after 12 hours, 120,000 people had read it. After 12 hours, 120,000 people had read it. I want to tell, to you, I want to tell you producers, Paul, that uh, I know many of them are not on social media. They don't really like, to, like it and so on. They think it's a waste of time. You know what? If you want to sell products to the public, and if the public has in, an interest in how that product is produced, and you choose not to talk about it, know this, somebody else will talk about it. And these other people who talk about your product are not always your friends. In fact, oftentimes they are the ones who actually want to stop your legacy, okay? So you have to choose uh, whether or not you engage in discussing stuff with the public. If you don't want to do it yourself, find somebody who does. I have seen some really good young dairymen who do a kick-ass job on social media yeah. with 40,000, 50,000 followers. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, and so I mean that is the important thing is uh, you know getting out there, not talking amongst ourselves uh, the way Melissa was saying, and it's about influencing uh, you know the 300 or so million Americans and and having them understand this because the media um, is a lot of times pushing the other direction, and there's others that are pushing that. Uh, I think a good example of this misinformation uh, and a recent example is the Burger King ads. Uh, I know you were engaged in that also. Um, I don't know if you can tell us a little bit about that, but this just seems to you know, and keep going. And I agree with you. I think it's got the basis starting in Livestock's Long Shadow. That was a long time ago, but it kind of got this conversation going. And we see that you know, even right now, uh, in, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, um, we had a recent incident. And if you could tell us you know, uh, what that was about and your engagement in that. So one morning I woke up and my Twitter account was on fire. Um, I was sent a video that was produced by Burger King, uh, just a little two-minute um, video with a boy, with a yodeling boy singing a methane song. And then the whole thing was framed in a way that cows fart and farts uh, generate greenhouse gases. And they tried to uh, be funny about it. Um, they depicted farmers uh, in a way that I think most people would have a a beef with, particularly in the industry. Um, and, um, and some of the stuff that they presented was just either premature because the research data they shared had not been published yet, um, or it was inconclusive. And, um, and so I, I was critical about it also on, on Twitter and, um, and then was contacted by Burger King and uh, shared my frustration and my critique with them. And, uh, and then I saw how things changed, both on the online version and, um, and this Yodel video did not make it on TV. And I have no idea what my, what my contribution to that was, but what I do know is that I was quite critical. I wrote a blog about that. The blog that I wrote was then made into an op-ed and uh, that went out in Civil Eats, had lots and lots of readers and um, I, I feel that it's my role as a, um, as a scientist and as an educator uh, to not sit on my hands when stuff like this comes out. Now, you can imagine that I get a lot of flack from entities that, um, that want to put this out and they feel it's funny, it's good, and it's promotional and so on. But I feel it is also my role and foremost my role to get them back on a path of... Um, 
of uh, science-based information and uh, particularly if they strive to affect public policy. So they promoted the use of lemongrass to reduce enteric methane, which is the Belgian methane. And, uh, and now everybody is asking our farmers to buy lemongrass and feed it. And that's really premature because we have done a lot of research on many different feed additives, lemongrass not being one of them. Uh, it's in, in the very early stages of, of investigation. And so it's, it's premature to be out there and tell the world now everybody feed lemongrass to uh, reduce the impact of a burger by a third. You know, that's um, one of those examples. So that's not to say that I don't have um, some praise for them. I do, because Burger King, for example, said, uh, we do want to help our farmers to reduce enteric emissions. That's a good thing. I applaud them for that. And I have told Burger King that, that this is a good thing. In my opinion, uh, the way they communicated it was not good, but the fact that they're doing it is good. And so um, it is possible, and I have been asked to work with them uh, on research and communications in the future. And I would do that because I think that if we were to work with some of those really large uh, companies like Cargill, Tyson, Burger King, McDonald's, and so on, uh, if we do, then we really move the needle because they have such a significant segment um, within the food sector that uh, if, if they make changes, it has a major impact overall. So um, I, I will work uh, with them like I will with any one of your producers here in the Sauerkin Valley. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, and I appreciate your engagement on that and getting you know the, the real story out there um, and, you know, engaging uh, Burger King in a positive way. Uh, you know, I like the way you said that, that, um, you know, the, the, their intent was good, the message was bad. And so how do we correct the message, uh, you know, move forward with that intent? I, I really appreciate that way of engaging. Um, can you let us know, um, you know, what you're working on, what your plans uh, for the future, uh, and a little bit more about how our dairy farmers can engage with you. You mentioned that a little bit, but so what what are you working on? What's uh, what can we expect to see from you in the next year or two? Or are you you know changing direction? Anything happening there that you can share with us? So I have one really major project right now, and that project is called Rethinking Methane. Um, and that Rethinking Methane has everything to do with um, redefining redefining how we evaluate methane and the significance of methane. Methane is a, a potent greenhouse gas, we all know that, but there are some nuances around methane that have been left out in the past and they are very important to be considered. Uh, because if you do consider them, then you will find that our farmers, if they manage to reduce methane, will be a very important solution provider in the carbon discussion. Because pulling methane out, I already told you, has an immediate cooling effect. And so our farmers can actually uh, provide a very important service to society on climate, on the climate side of things, if they continue to uh, do as good a job as they have been, which is uh, in reducing methane. Um, but the, the former narrative will not give them that credit. The future narrative, which I'm pushing very hard for with the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, IPCC, and with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations in Rome, um, this new narrative will change the way that methane, the change the way it will change the way dairies and beef operations and so on will be perceived in the 
in the climate realm. So this is a very important project I do. It's called Rethinking Methane. I just released a video uh, maybe two weeks ago. It's on YouTube. It's titled Rethinking Methane. I encourage your, your members to, to watch it. It's only five minutes, but it explains what I'm talking about here. Um, we are writing articles on this. We are writing peer-reviewed articles on this. I think this is an extremely important game-changing uh, game project. Um, I do also work with the state of California with the Air Resources Board, the California Air Resources Board, and most recently now also with the California Energy Commission to monitor um, greenhouse gas emissions from commercial dairies before and after alternative manure management practices and or digesters have been installed so that we know what the effectiveness is of using these techniques and technologies to reduce greenhouse gases further. Because that's really important. Because if you do something that's good for the environment, then you need to be able to quantify how good it is. Because otherwise you can't get credits for it. If you just say I'm a good driver, uh, but you can't quantify why you are a good driver, well, then it's just you saying you are a good driver. But if you, can, if you can somehow quantify that you're a good driver, well, then maybe your insurance company gives you a break or so. Who knows? Yeah. Um, you know, if a, if a dairyman says, you know, we do the best we can and we are best stewards of the land and so on, then uh, many people out there will say, that's just a PR line. Okay, we don't believe that. We think, uh, we think animals are uh, not treated well and the environment is not taken into consideration, blah, blah, blah. They, they go on and on with their criticism. If you as a, as a dairy industry really want to make inroads on this and uh, get credit for the stuff you do, then it has to be quantified. If you can't show it, if you can't prove it, then it's not happening in the eyes of those who are critical of you. So anyhow, uh, doing several large studies on commercial dairies, um, also doing studies here on campus with the so-called bovine bubbles, large structures I've built years ago, to quantify the uh, emission reductions that are possible. Done some very large beef studies here on campus um, with companies that have developed technologies, feed additives that you can feed to animals to reduce, for example, ammonia or methane. And these uh, trials have resulted in FDA approved feed additives. My facility here on campus is the only one in the United States that allows for group housing of bovines, of cattle, um, comparing uh, relative reductions of gaseous emissions. And so that's a, that's a big deal for us to have that. Yeah. Yeah. I've uh, seen a lot of your work and really appreciate it. I think we do have a good story to tell. We have made tremendous methane emission reductions in the industry. Uh, even just in the last five years, I really am amazed uh, at how far this industry has moved. Uh, but yeah, quantifying that. Uh, so we've got actual numbers and then broadcasting that out. And I appreciate your role in both both of those and actually the on-farm you know, research uh, and the research at UC Davis to quantify those things. And then uh, with the Clear Center to uh, you know, put that out there and correct some of these misunderstandings. Definitely. So I really appreciate anything else, Melissa, uh, before we wrap up. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll definitely link your YouTube videos in our, in our show notes, just so our members can check that out directly. And just thanks so much for not only appearing today on the podcast, Dr. Mitloner, but for being such a good partner um, of our industry and our organization. And just if there's anything Dairyman can do to contribute to your research, please don't hesitate to reach out. And please know that you're always welcome if you have 
anything you'd like to share with producers, you know, both on our show and we're happy to, um, you know, send out information in our newsletters and via email, but it's just such important work that we're doing. And, and I think you're right. Just, just like Burger King had really good intentions by funding this study, just the fact that we're, you know, willing and, and so it, a lot of dairy producers are really excited to work on these issues. It's just getting the good message out there that's sort of the stopping point for us. Yeah, maybe I just leave you with some um, contact information. So uh, the CLEAR Center that I'm directing uh, is on the web, has a web address, which is clear.ucdavis.edu. Uh, I am on Twitter, as I said before, and my Twitter handle is GHG, that stands for Greenhouse Gas, GHG Guru. And uh, you will find a lot of very active discussions going on uh, on, that, on that Twitter. Um, and uh, I encourage you, if you're not on Twitter, to be on Twitter, seriously, because you'll find a lot of your, of your peers there and um, a lot of really condensed information that uh, might be in areas that you're interested in that you get uh, you know, free of charge and uh, you become a part of a larger network. And I think it's, it's really good. It's, it's really good. It's not a waste of your time. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, and please know that I'm always happy to, uh, to work with you on educating both your producers and learning uh, from your producers myself. Um, you know, visit farms and, and bringing people who want to know more about dairying onto commercial farms and explaining environmental stuff to those uh, individuals. Um, this is really important. And, uh, and I'm a very happy partner along those lines. Definitely. We, I think we have a lot of really good things going and, and showing that off and getting people who wouldn't typically come to the farm and, and take in that information out to farms is probably one of the most important pieces to that puzzle. So. Let me tell you one last thing. Uh, before COVID-19 broke, I was invited to come to Ireland, the country of Ireland, and talk to the Irish uh, Farmers Association and the Irish government about methane the Rethinking Methane Project. I had done this in New Zealand and now in Ireland. And I told them um, how far we have come in California, particularly the, the dairy industry story. They could not believe what they heard. They could not believe what they heard. And they did a very concerted effort to understand what it is with our M program, our digester program, uh, how the industry worked with the state, the incentive programs and so on. Uh, and they are viewing us as a global role model, okay? The world is viewing us, our dairy industry in particular, as a role model. Uh, we are too close to that. We don't see that, okay? We just don't see it. But we are that. It's time for us to, uh, you know, to get this not just out, but also to benefit from it mm -hmm. and, and uh, work with others who want to uh, follow our lead. We are a leader in the world. There's no question about that. You are a leader in the world, and there's no question about that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mitloner. We really appreciate your time. And, and every, every time I ha have a discussion with you or hear you speak, I come away with more good information to share with friends and family and, and anybody that will listen, really. So thank you so much. Very good. You're, you're Beyond, we appreciate all the work you do. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you.
right. Well, that about wraps up our 17th episode of Seen and Heard. Darby, just as a couple reminders for our producers, um, we wanted to, to, again, just highlight Jason's call to action on that bill, AB 2959. So what should our producers do right now in regards to that? Yeah, so if you want to um, voice your disapproval for AB 2959, you can contact me or Melissa, and you just need to give us your dairy name and address, and we'll be happy to match that with your senator and pass that message along. Definitely, and that bill, as Jason mentioned, is still in committee, but we want to make sure it hopefully doesn't make it out of committee and to the floor, and and even if it does, um, that we kill that on the floor. Great. Well, I, um, moving into the question of the week, I was kind of racking my brain. I'll admit it's, it's been a little quiet over here this week, Darby. I think everybody's just kind of trying to wrap up their summer chores um, or take those quick vacations before kids get back to um, virtual or real school this week. But I did have a call from a producer who asked about CFAP applications. He was a little bit behind in getting that started and he was wondering what he should do or if he could still file an application for CFAP. Yeah, so if you'll remember, that's the Coronavirus Food Assistant Pro Assistance Program, and there is still time to get an application in, but that program does close in mid-August, so that date is pretty rapidly approaching. So what you want to do if you need to apply still is call your local FSA office as soon as possible to find out what you need to do to get the forms filled out. And if you have any challenges with the application, please reach out to either of us or our office this next week, and we can help walk you through the process. Perfect. And for those who may have missed the PPD webinar um, last week, Annie presented on Friday. That's now up as a bonus episode, as well as um, oh, on our website and YouTube channel, Annie's posted the video. So you can see the slides that she goes through as she does that. Um, and we've linked that in our show notes and we'll also, um, I think we made sure to send it out this week in our update to members. So if you get that written update via email, the link is right in there. Um, we just wanna say again for this episode, a huge thank you to Annie, Dr. Mitloner and Paul, along with Jason for joining us for today's episode. And thank you to all our listeners and our members. Absolutely. And remember to reach out to us with questions, comments, content requests, wud.pod at gmail.com. I can be reached at M-L-E-M-A at wudairies.com and Darby. I'm Darby, D-A-R-B-Y at wudairies.com. Great. And we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform. Thanks, everyone. While Western United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the Western United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies' generous 2020 business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. 
That's info at W-U-D-A-I-R-I-E-S dot com.